Thank you for listening to the podcast of Antioch Church, a Christian community in Bend, Oregon, being formed by the story of a God who is making all things new, including us. You can learn more at antiochchurch.org. Thanks for listening. Good morning. How are we doing? Well, my name is Sean. If you don't know me, I am one of the pastors on our team. And I do want to extend a special hello to the folks that are watching at home. We, we heard from a lot of you guys this week that with the crazy COVID numbers, you're going to be watching from home. And we want you to know we celebrate, understand, and respect your decision. And we are so happy to see all your smiling eyes in the room. <laughs> that get it? Okay. I just thought of that one. Okay. Uh, We're just so glad that everybody is staying safe. And really on behalf of the pastors, we just want to say how proud we are of the Antioch community and how well you've done throughout the COVID-19 pandemic and wearing masks so we can have church inside and getting vaccinated, boosted, staying home. If you are sick, we are so proud of the ways in which you guys have tangibly loved your neighbors. Yes. You guys have done a great job of that. And you know, just selfish, sacrificial love. And if I'm honest, sometimes it can be nerve wracking to get up here and like take a mask off with hundreds of people inside, especially with a little one at home. So I'm so grateful for your willingness and diligence wearing masks as well. And we are gonna get through this. We're gonna get through this together. We're gonna love our Bend and Central Oregon community really well. So thank you guys for the ways in which you've done that. Today, we are in the second Sunday after Epiphany. You can see a little bit of our Epiphany decor. If you're sitting in the right spot, does it look like I have a halo? Yeah, yeah, it's natural, it's natural, yep. We are gonna be diving together into a story in scripture that probably most of us are pretty familiar with. Last week, Oshita talked about the theological implications of the idea of Epiphany, but it bears repeating a bit what this season of Epiphany is about. Epiphany comprises the time, you know, between the two Super Bowls of our faith, right? Christmas and then Easter with Lent leading up to Easter. And she talked about epiphany meaning to manifest. It also means to show or to make known or to reveal. And just as Oshida talks about the Magi bringing gifts to visit the newborn Messiah that showed or made known or revealed Jesus as the Christ, and the Sundays after that initial day of epiphany, we commemorate other experiences in the life of Jesus that reveal to us who he is, that demonstrate his power, that show his authority, and they make known his love. So Epiphany is really extraordinary time, extraordinary time, because what it does is it takes ordinary human moments, take the birth of an infant or or a wedding, and it makes them extraordinary. So in this season of Epiphany, we are hopefully able to see the extraordinary in the everyday. Now, thank you to the wonderful Amy James for reading our scripture today, but it comes from the Gospel of John, and John's Gospel is known for using poetic language. Think, in the beginning was the Word, or the Word was made flesh, and that's just the type of writer that John is. There's also this theme of misunderstanding and twofold meanings throughout the gospel. Jesus employs figurative language. He uses metaphors. He uses double entendres that kind of go right over people's heads. And really, if you are a fan of scavenger hunts, John's gospel is for you. I know that sounds silly, but John's gospel is planned as a kind of a treasure hunt, and the reader is invited to do their best to keep up with the cryptic clues that he lays out. Just point out one of the things he said towards the end of our passage. It says, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee, 
was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. So first of the signs which Jesus performed. John will point out the second sign in just two short chapters also happens in Cana. This is where Jesus heals the royal official's son. After that, John doesn't blatantly point out each son. You know, that would make sign, that would make the treasure hunt a little bit too easy. But all told in John's gospel, there are seven different signs. So the number of completeness or the number of perfection. Those signs include the two that we've mentioned and then Jesus healing the paralytic man at the pool of Bethesda, feeding the 5,000, walking on water, healing a man born blind, and the raising of Lazarus from the dead. In fact, the signs that Jesus performs are exactly what he promised Nathaniel that he would do at the end of John chapter 1, which immediately precedes our text today. Jesus says to Nathaniel, very truly, I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. All of these signs that we will see throughout John's Gospels are moment when heaven opens up. God's transforming power and love burst into our world. Often they are ordinary moments that become extraordinary. Because these signs, they point to something beyond themselves. Just as a road sign might alert us to a curve ahead or what lies before us, these signs point to a deeper truth, which will be slowly revealed throughout John's gospel until the hour has come for Jesus' crucifixion. And these signs and miracles beg the question of us, how do we feel about miracles? I mean, of course, you know, miracles are supposed to be out of the ordinary, but are they especially strange to you? Or maybe they're unbelievable. Maybe you have a hard time reconciling them with reality. Or maybe, maybe the miracles that Jesus performed were some you know, type of magic trick. Well, surely there is an explanation that was lost on the people who were less educated than us 2,000 years ago. Maybe the miracles that we see in scripture are legends, just like fish stories, right? They tend to grow, you know, that fish gets bigger and bigger and bigger each time that story is told. Maybe that is what happened with the miracles. There's actually an interesting discussion about this in the Brothers Karamazov, if you are a fan of 19th century Russian literature, and who isn't, right? Um, really, what they talk about in the book is uh, whether a realist will ever have the capacity to believe in the miracles of scripture? Will they ever be able to think that the miracles actually happened? Talking about this idea, N.T. Wright, I love how he puts it. He says, it simply won't do to describe Jesus's miracles as pleasant but imaginary legends. Simply won't do. You gotta be British to say that. But he says the whole point of the signs is that they are moments when heaven and earth intersect with each other. Just like Jesus said to Nathaniel, it's not that they couldn't happen in real life, it's that they point away from earth toward a heavenly reality. So if the motto for John's text is the word became flesh, then these signs and miracles are examples of heaven breaking through in earth through the flesh of Jesus. Now, I know that this is a pretty familiar text, but I want to ask you the question. I want you to think about your answer. You don't have to share it, so don't worry, but... What is it about this story that sticks out to you? We all tend to remember this story. of We know the wedding at Canaan, Jesus turning water into wine. Why do we remember it so vividly? Is it that Jesus went to a wedding at all? Does that feel strange to square maybe with your conception of Jesus? Is it that Jesus' first recorded miracle was something as seemingly inconsequential as having enough 
wine to drink. Is it that takes place in a nowheresville like Cana? It's a really small town. Is it the scandal of divine reluctance and Jesus needing to be pushed a little bit to actually perform this miracle? Is it how Jesus speaks to his mom? Does that stand out to you? Whatever it is, I think we do have a little something for everyone. I believe that God is going to speak through the Holy Spirit to each one of us in this room today or watching at home or even if you're listening later on a podcast, okay? So the text says this, on the third day, a wedding took place in Cana of Galilee. Jesus' mother was there and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. Now, Cana would have been a small village. We don't know exactly where its location was, but it was most likely a few miles north of Nazareth and Galilee, so not too far. Cana is only mentioned in the New Testament in John's Gospel, but this would have been, again, a small village wedding. And how they did weddings isn't the same as we do them now because their wedding celebrations lasted a week long. That's right. The couple didn't go on a honeymoon, but instead they stayed home for a week and in partnership with their families, they, they basically hosted a house party for seven days, okay? I love my family, but that is not what I wanted to do for our wedding, right? Hang out with them for seven days in a row. This long celebration was a part of the culture of hospitality in the world at that time. So when we see in verse three where it says, when the wine was gone, Jesus's mother said to him, they have no more wine. That was a big problem. In this culture of hospitality, this would be absolutely devastating, a social disaster and a disgrace. For a Jewish feast, wine was essential. There's actually an old uh, saying of rabbis that says, without wine, there is no joy. Anybody agree with that sentiment, right? Yeah, feels a little extreme, but you know, you get the idea, right? Bride and groom actually might have even regarded it as bringing bad luck on their married life that the wine had run out at their celebration. Running out of wine was certainly a faux pas in their culture, but I think it would be pretty much the same for us in our culture as well. How would you have felt if they had run out of all the refreshments at your wedding, right? You would have been embarrassed. It would have been a social disgrace a little bit. Julie and I got married in San Antonio down in Texas, and while we did not run out of wine, we did run out of margaritas, okay? Do you think Jesus could turn, you know, water into tequila? I think it probably, probably could happen, but, you know, that, that happened to us. But I do also wonder if there is something to pay attention to about Mary being the one to notice about the wine going out before anyone else. Falls in that super special category of mom skills, right? They just know what is going on. I know that my mom's greatest fear in life is to have someone over to her house and run out of food or run out of drink. That is literally the worst thing that could ever happen. That's why she always makes like five extra meals and gets a bunch of extra drinks. I think it's a special mom skill. Maybe that's why Mary notices before anyone else. But what is Jesus' response when his mom points this out to him? The text says, woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. Now, when I hear this interaction with Jesus, my, Jesus and his mother, my immediate thought is, do not speak to your mother that way, right? <laughs> what are you thinking? 
but I, I do think that we are suffering from a bit of a you know, poor translation here because the, the Greek word for woman here does not denote any kind of disrespect. It's not like we would say like, woman, stop it. You know, that is very disrespectful. It sounds horrible to us, but it would not have sounded like that to the contemporary listener. How Jesus addresses Mary here is actually the same way that he will address her when she makes her other appearance, only other appearance in the Gospel of John at the foot of the cross. He'll use that same word to do it. Now, Gail O'Day is a John expert, and she says what Jesus is saying to Mary is more of a form of disengagement from the events going on. Like, you know, what does the wine being out have to do with me rather than being a hostile or rude comment? But just in case anybody needs to hear this, don't speak to your mom that way, okay? All right, there's a little pastoral advice for you. Don't talk to your mom like that. Just to be safe. So Jesus says his hour has not yet come. And this is something that he will repeat throughout John's gospel as he prepares for his death on the cross. And we don't know exactly why he responds the way he does. But what we do know is that his self-revelation, that his eventual death, they unfold slowly throughout the gospel of John. They leave time for Jesus' teaching and deeds to take root in the lives and the hearts of the disciples. So certainly Jesus had more important things to be concerned about than a shortage of wine at a, at a wedding in Cana of all places. But his mother seems to know better as mothers often do. The text continues. It says, his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. So again, every detail that we hear or see in John's gospel is important. These stone, uh, these stone water jars were used for Jewish ritual cleansing. Washing of your hands is a very important part of Jewish culture, but these symbols were used uh, to point out the emptiness of the traditional religiosity that was based on the law. And also there are six stone jars here, not seven. Seven is perfect and six is incomplete. The six jars represent Jesus doing away with the imperfections and the incompleteness of a religion that is based on the law and him fulfilling it by putting in their place the new wine of the gospel of grace. Jesus turned the incompleteness and the imperfection of the law into the perfection of grace. And when the grace of Jesus comes, there is enough and plenty to spare for all. I mean, if each of those jars held between 20 and 30 gallons, we am not a math expert, but we are talking between 120 and 180 gallons of wine. Anybody have a guess how many bottles of wine that is? That is between 600 and 900 bottles of wine. I don't care how big your wedding party is, you're not drinking that much wine, right? Even if it lasts a week, that is a lot of wine. And it wasn't just a high quantity of wine, but it was high quality too. The text continues. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink, 
but you have saved the best till now. So the maitre d' of this wedding party, not realizing where the wine has come from, is shocked to find that the good stuff has come out now. You know, normally you put the good stuff out first, let people's taste buds, senses get a little bit dull, then you serve the cheap stuff, right? But not with Jesus. The miracle that Jesus performs at the wedding at Cana is about quantity and quality. We mentioned the importance of wine at Jewish feasts before that, but we know that to be true in our lives too, that, that wine often accompanies moments of deep celebration in our lives, moments where we gather around the table or even moments where we commemorate lives that have been lost. But as we look deeper into the first sign that John presents in the life of Jesus, we see that what is being revealed, revealed is the fulfillment of Old Testament eschatological hopes, which is really just a fancy word of the hope for the promised Messiah who would set all things right, or as we talk about at Antioch, the reconciliation of all things. The book of Amos speaks of the day when the mountain shall drip with sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. The book of Joel is the same as it talks about the day that the mountains will drip with new wine, that a fountain will flow out of the Lord's house. The image of the wedding banquet is also used frequently throughout scripture as a picture of the restoration of Israel. Wine is used as a symbol of the joy and celebration associated with salvation. Isaiah speaks of the feast that God will prepare for all peoples, a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wines. The abundance of wine is a symbol of the abundance of joy that awaits not only Israel, but all people on the day of God's salvation, on the day of the reconciliation of all things. So this first of Jesus' sign is the inaugural act of God's promised salvation. The abundance of good wine is an eschatological symbol that points to the joyous arrival of God's new age. So when we ask ourselves, isn't Jesus turning water into wine as his first miracle a little frivolous? Maybe isn't it a little bit impractical, especially for his first sign? Wouldn't it be better to outdo Moses or something and part the Red Sea again? That would be a really killer first sign, right? But we see in this first sign that it's a hint that Jesus is saying that the new era has dawned that God, my Father, is doing a new thing through me. And this wedding in the town on the back of nowhere might seem insignificant to the world, but it is a foretaste of the world to come and the feast of celebration. And again, it can be fun to do the math and talk about 900 bottles of wine, but I don't think John wants us to be super literal here. Pretty much no wedding party ever could drink that much wine. But what I think John is trying to say here is that there is a glorious superabundance in the grace of Christ. That Jesus has come to take the old system that was good but incomplete and had its limits, and he is doing a new thing. That with grace, the limit does not exist. Jesus' grace is overflowing. It's far sufficient and more sufficient than for every need. So yes, this miracle seems a bit frivolous and a bit silly on the surface, but I think it indicates a few important truths to us about the gospel of Jesus. First, I think that Jesus is beginning to show us what an abundant life looks like. In chapter one of John's gospel, using that poetic language that John loves to use, John tells us that in him was life, and that life was the light of all people. Later on, 
in chapter 10, he, Jesus himself will tell us, I have come that they might have life and have it abundantly, have life to the full. And we see that Jesus' extravagant miracle of changing the water into wine is a sign that in him joy and salvation and abundant living have arrived. And abundant life is more than existence or survival. It's more than having gadgets and gizmos aplenty. It is so much deeper and more profound than that. Elizabeth Johnson is a Lutheran pastor. She's a professor at a seminary in Cameroon. I love how she puts it. She says, abundant life is to know and be known by the one through whom all life came into being. It is to have an intimate relationship with the one who loves us so much that he doesn't know how to stop giving. It's the kind of life depicted by the abundance of fine wine in this story. Of course, you know, Abundant life does not automatically mean that we're on easy street or that we'll be in the lap of luxury or that we won't experience sadness or suffering. But it does mean that in Jesus, we have an abundant, extravagant source of grace to sustain us. A grace that is more than sufficient to provide where we fall short and to give us joy even amid sorrow and struggle. Abundant life means that in Christ, we are joined to the source of true life, life that is rich and full and eternal and life that neither sorrow nor suffering nor death itself can destroy. Now, one of the other things I love about this story is its reversal of expectations. We often talk about the upside down kingdom of God, but did you notice that in this story, Jesus didn't perform the miracle all on his own? Many others were a part of what God was doing to bring about the literal and metaphorical transformation that occurs. While we'll never know the true answer to this question, I am wondering, would Jesus have performed this miracle without Mother Mary whispering a few words of wisdom to him? Again, we, we don't know, but it, it gives me hope for the concerns that I bring to God about what is going on in my life or what is going on in the world as we make requests of him, as we let him know that the wedding is out of wine, that he will do something. But even after that, Jesus doesn't just snap his fingers and turn the water into wine. He involved the servants that were there. It's because Jesus invites others, which now includes you and me, to be a part of the miracle making. The servants are the ones who take the jars and fill them with water. They are the ones who then draw the wine out of the jars and present it to the head waiter. It's because Jesus invites us to be a part of what he is doing in the world. We'll see this later as he feeds the 5,000 too. He took the snacks, the small amount of food that the people had, and he turned it into something bigger and better. He involved us in it. And that's still true today. Jesus is still healing. Jesus is still helping and still saving the world through his power and in his hands, surely. But he offers a share to anybody who would like to be a part of that. And this first sign of Jesus' glory is revealed to just a few, but not who we would expect. We might expect the groom or the bride to play a key role here. I mean, Jesus has just saved their family from you know, social disaster and shame, but they obliviously enjoy this fine wine. We might expect important guests to have you know, inside information about where this good and abundant wine has come from. But it is the servants who get a sneak peek at Jesus' glory in the story. This is the upside-down kingdom at work. 
And then finally, what I think I love most about this story in Scripture and its status as the first of the signs which reveal Jesus' glory is that God doesn't want our faith to be too holy to be happy. Sometimes we're really good at the holy part and not very good at the happy part. But if we look at the life of Jesus, he loved celebrating people. He loved when people got married. He celebrated people when they were healed of disease and deformity. He loved enjoying meals with anyone and everyone. I'm pretty sure that Jesus is that friend that when you invite them to a party, they always show up, no matter what's going on in their lives. He carried a a spirit of celebration with him as he proclaimed a God of mercy and peace and joy. The abundant life that Jesus talked about included celebration and joy. And if we aren't looking for as many opportunities to celebrate, then I think that we are missing out on the fullness of that abundant life Jesus calls us to. Now, I am not saying that you always have to be happy. I'm not saying that. Scripture is very, very clear that Jesus is close to the brokenhearted and we do not need to put on a facade of happiness for him. But if we are to accept the superabundance of the grace of Jesus, a peace that passes all understanding, the fullness of joy, we should be a celebratory people. I stumbled across this quote from a theologian named Robert Hodgkins. I think Pete has mentioned it before, but it bears repeating. It says, Christians ought to be celebrating constantly. We ought to be preoccupied with parties, banquets, feasts, and merriment. We got to give ourselves over to veritable orgies of joy because we have been liberated from the fear of life and the fear of death. We ought to attract people to the church quite literally by the fun there is in being a Christian. David Steele is a pastor in Washington and he has coined the term Cana Grace. He says if we are to emulate Jesus, we should be extending Cana Grace as much and as often as possible, that we should have people feel welcome, that we should have people experience love by throwing parties, the combined food, decorations, music, laughter, because that is how people can experience the joy that is found in Jesus. Now, I'm going to admit something which is probably not a big surprise to those of you that know me. I am not great at staying up to, with pop culture and celebrity news, Okay. It's not my vibe, not good at it. Again, I'm the guy talking about Russian literature. So, um, but I wonder, I'm a pop culture reference incoming, warning. I wonder if you saw last week there was a little beef between Reese Witherspoon and Ina Garden. Anybody see this? Okay, okay, all right. So, I assume everybody knows who Reese Witherspoon, the actress is. But Ina Garden, maybe you don't know her. She's chef, cookbook author. She has a food show called The Barefoot Contessa. She makes amazing food, awesome cookbook. Sometimes her recipe is a little expensive, but always delicious, okay? And again, I can't believe I'm about to discuss Reese Witherspoon's Instagram account, but here it goes. Um, she has 27 million followers, and she posted some habits that she, is taking up, that she has taken up this year that are helping her improve her life. She starts each day with a big glass of water. She gets at least 10 minutes of outdoor light. She reads for 30 to 60 minutes a day in a distraction-free environment, and she avoids late-night Netflix binging by getting in bed by 10 p.m. and sleeping eight hours, which are all really good habits, ones I would generally support. I would love to be sleeping eight hours a night currently. Um, Well, Ina Garden commented on her post, and she said, that sounds great, but I'm probably not going to do any of those things. My formula is much easier to follow. 
Ina's four habits are drinking more large cosmos, binging streaming shows, staying in bed in the morning as long as she can, and spending more time safely with the people that she loves. I think as Christians, we need a little more Ina in our lives and a little less Reese, okay? All the things that Reese talks about are great. We might equate them with being intentional in our study of scripture, other daily habits, other disciplines, our prayer life. But sometimes it feels like we have the market cornered on that stuff. But we like to forget that Jesus liked to celebrate and drink wine and go to parties and live a life of abundant joy that was infectious to everyone around him. And that this deep joy revealed the glory of God to others. So yes, do the regular disciplines that are important in your walk with Jesus. Don't email me. Tell me I'm against these things or prayer or whatever. Those things are awesome. They are an important, necessary part of the journey of faith, important part of my experience with Jesus. But don't miss out on the other parts too because you're too busy with those things. They might be just as important to reveal the glory and the goodness of God to those around you. So I want you to think about what are the things that you can do in your life that might cultivate this type of deep joy and how your life might be different if you do. And if that exercise feels frivolous to you, like changing water into wine is a first miracle, then it might be exactly what you need. Because here in John's gospel, he doesn't tell us something Jesus did once and never did again, but he speaks of things that Jesus is forever and eternally doing. Not things at that one time at that wedding, that uh, wedding in Cana, or as the story progresses in Galilee, Jerusalem, or across Israel, but of the things that Jesus still does today. So yes, Jesus turning water into wine was an incredible miracle on that special wedding day. But more than that, we see that whenever Jesus comes into a life, there comes a new quality, which is like turning water into wine. Life becomes vivid. Life becomes sparkling, exciting, thrilling, exhilarating, grace-filled, and joyful. So Antioch, may we be a people who are filled with Cana grace, and may we live into the abundant life of joy and celebration that Jesus invites us to. Now, Pastor Amy is going to come up and continue in this joy and celebration through the practice of communion.